super secret island on the Pacific Rim. And all they've got are their movies and each other. All they've got are their movies and each other. Harry might actually be a volleyball. It's Mike and Harry's Desert Island Movie Podcast. Welcome to Desert Island Movie Podcast with Harry and Mike. This is the podcast where once every other week, Mike and I, who have crashed on a desert island in the Pacific Rim, in route to the VHS convention in Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, reach into the only thing that we have to keep us sane on this rock, which is our big bag of assorted VHS tapes, all of which are movies that are near and dear to our hearts. And we each pick one. Uh, and they're linked maybe through something obvious, or maybe something a little less obvious, like a certain emotion or a feeling or a character. This week, we have two, two movies that are, I think, kind of wildly different, but at the same time are linked maybe by some common themes uh, and some, I guess, common feelings. Uh, so my film is Porco Rosso by Hayao Miyazaki, and Mike's is Shunking Express by Wong Kar Wai. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Desert Island Movie Pod. The plan is for this episode to be released at the same time as the last episode, but hopefully the people who are receiving our messages in a bottle know to release them at the same time on release day. Marco Rosso, Miyazaki's soaring action adventure of a valiant pilot. Here we go. It is Porco. Transformed by a mysterious spell. I only look out for myself. And his heroic battles to rid the skies of notorious pirates. Slice of it to bacon! Full of courage and humor. I'll tell everyone you're chicken! Chicken, pig, what's the difference? <laughs> Take flight with the incredible Porco Rosso. Yeah, I think it's worth, you know, maybe getting this out of the way right at the bat. Um, right out the gate. Right at the bat, right at the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I watched the dubbed version. I've seen, you know, a handful of Miyazaki films. I like Miyazaki. I'm not immersed in, like, Miyazaki fandom culture. I don't know what the preferred way to watch these is. I don't know. Like, the, the English dubs often have pretty stellar stacked casts. Um, they're released by Disney, and I think that that gives them as dubs a little bit more clout than you know maybe other dubs get. So I don't know how people necessarily prefer to watch these movies. I happen to watch the dub with Michael Keaton. If the subtitled version is preferred, um, awesome. I'd like to watch that at some point because this is my first time seeing this movie and I liked it a lot, but I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Do you know what the, if there's a general preference one way or the I... other? I don't know. Um, like, I, I, I like Miyazaki movies a lot. I like Studio Ghibli a lot. Um, I, for the most part, have only watched the dub versions because a lot of the time that's like, or in, in a lot of cases, that's sort of the only thing that's been available to me um, or been available to us here in the US or on this island to watch. Uh, so the version that I watched, I, the only option was to buy it on YouTube. So I purchased this film. Uh, and I'm glad I did because now I can watch it again and again with my family uh, on this rock. But it was the only option was the dub version. And I think that's a, a, an important thing to bring up because I've seen so many movies uh, that are dubbed that are just complete garbage. And I do think this is one of the better dubs I've seen. Now, that being said, I would love to be able to watch this subtitled because I'm sure that like 
it, it probably is a lot better in that regard than the dub version. So I'm curious what the differences are. If you know what they are, send us a message in a bottle. <laughs> Via Twitter or Instagram, Twitter or Instagram. <laughs> at Desert Island Movie Pod. And let us know what your preference is. But yeah, for me, it's hard to imagine... Um, it's hard to imagine this character as anyone other than Michael Keaton for me personally now, having seen yeah. it this time. I'm curious what another interpretation might be or how close Keaton is to you know the original. We'll kind of get into some of the other characters later as it might relate to this topic a little bit. But for now, Harry, I'm curious, as a volleyball yourself, mm-hmm. um, how do you relate to the idea of a character who is cursed to, to not <laughs> be the man that... <laughs> That they, once, that they once were. <laughs> That's the only thing. I, I hate this movie. I just like the fact that he's a uh, pig and I'm a volleyball. Um, volleyball's historically, like football's made of pigskin, so I connect to Porco on a lot of fronts. Um, well, yeah, I think I think that's an interesting, like, it, it's something that, because I, when I rewatched this, this is the first time I've seen this movie in uh, quite a while, but I totally forgot that like, in this movie, Porco Rosso is the main character. He's an Italian, uh, World War, former World War One fighter pilot, uh, and he has been he's been cursed to look like a pig, and they don't outright say why. Uh, it's implied that it's because of the fact that he kind of sees himself that way and chooses to behave very piggishly. And, of course, this movie, in that classic cinema tradition, is about him kind of learning to care for other people and do things that are... Uh, less out of self-preservation and more selfless overall. So often there's like a need to outright explain something that's fantastical or magical. And I am always a big fan of like, just sort of accepting that as part of the world and like calling attention to it without it being like self-aware, like, oh, well, crazy, he's big. Like everybody accepts it. Everybody makes fun of him and teases them about it. But no one's ever like, wait a minute, this guy's a pig? Yeah, and that's that's something I'm going to get back to in just a second here uh, in, in kind of the way I was impressed with this movie. But first, going off of what you were just saying, it might be good to elaborate a little bit about, about like what's going on in this movie. So Porco Rosso is about uh, a former Italian World War I fighter pilot uh, who is now a bounty hunter, but he's also wanted by the Italian government for not, essentially for deserting the Italian Air Force after it sort of like merged into fascism post-World War I. Um, so he's essentially like an expat and he's living off this deserted island and he is servicing people in the Adriatic, um, different bounties against like, what are called like sky and sea pirates. Um, you know, he's stopping, uh, these different gangs from like stealing gold and from taking hostages. Uh, and he is like world renowned as like one of the, the, the best pilot essentially. Um, in this part of the world. Like he's able to do things with his plane that no one else can even get close to. As part of like a plan to take him down, all of the different like sea pirate gangs band together and hire an American ace fighter pilot to take him down. Uh, And he does, but he doesn't, he takes down Porco's plane, but doesn't kill him. So Porco is able to get his plane repaired uh, in, I found, I actually found this out in the, um, uh, in the actual subtitled version in the original Japanese, uh, it's Turin, which is like Northern Italy, but for some reason for the American dub, they change it to Milan. But he's going to get his plane fixed uh, by uh, Piccolo, who's like his old old buddy. Um, and Piccolo's granddaughter, um, Fio, Fio, is taking on the mantle of repairing it. And Porco, you know, as is the fact that he's like 
kind of pig-headed and self-serving, he's sexist. Like, he doesn't think that uh, a woman can fix his plane, but then she does, and it flies better than he ever could have expected. Uh, and to sort of, because he's wanted by the Italian government, they get wind of the fact that he is in Italy. He's hiding out, getting his plane repaired. So in order to allow him a quick and easy escape, uh, when he has his plane fixed, he escapes with Theo, both so she can kind of be his onboard engineer, and then also so they can say that he took her hostage. So that way Piccolo and the rest of Piccolo's family don't get arrested. Um, but upon his return to his little island in the Adriatic, uh, he is again confronted by the likes, uh, the, the pirates, and Donald Curtis is ready for a rematch. And when he sees Theo, he immediately falls in love, and they decide that instead of doing like a fight to the death or like a race, they're gonna be, uh, the two things that each are like putting up as I guess collateral for their showdown is um, one, if Donald loses, he will pay off the debt that he, that Porco owes to Piccolo for like repairing his plane. And then if Porco loses, then Donald gets to marry Theo, which Theo does not want at all. But she's willing to put that up because she has so much trust in Porco. Uh, we learn that Porco uh, is the last surviving like pilot from his Air Force crew during World War I, uh, and that he saw like essentially all of his command, including like his best friend, get shot down. Um, and at one point, he started to like lose consciousness. And when he came to, he was floating above the clouds and saw this giant like trail of like pilots, almost like they were on their way to heaven or in some sort of like... Like a milky way of, of dead pilots. Yeah, which is such a cool image. Um, and that's like yeah. what he tells Bio. And it's implied that that's sort of from that, like surviving that and dealing with that guilt is what has turned him maybe into a pit. Um, but he shows up to the race and uh, it's essentially a draw once they're in the air. So instead they bring it back down to the ground and get into a boxing match, which is so funny. Um, and just by the skin of his teeth, Corco went. So Theo does not have to marry Donald um, and he's able to pay off all debts that Porco owes. Um, it's important to mention too, I don't think I brought this up, that uh, Porco also has kind of like a romantic interest. Gina, who um, runs this, she essentially owns this restaurant that is in the Adriatic that all the pirates sort of congregate at. And it's sort of like the hotel in Zonic, where like, if you're there, you don't get into any fights. You're just there to eat, you're just there to drink, and kind of be happy to be married. Um, but Gina loves Porco, and always has, and is just sort of waiting for him to I guess, act on his own feelings or either tell her I'm not interested, like give her a definitive answer. Um, but after Porco defeats Donald in this fight, uh, Donald looks up and the audience doesn't see, but Donald says, like, hey, something's wrong with your face, you look different. So it's implied that the curse has been lifted and that he is going to go and now live with Gina. And it's a good time to say, too, just a quick reminder, like spoiler alert on everything that was just said. Um, yeah, spoilers for what? The past, yeah. But yeah, so it is, that's good little rundown right there of, of kind of what's going on in this movie. It's it's a very simple movie. Um, and to kind of conclude the little conversation on, on the pig aspect, if there was a pig man yeah. in, a, in a live action movie by a great director, I would assume going into that movie that it would be, that it would matter somehow. Like, that would be my gut assumption if I went to see a movie about a, a live-action pig man. I'd be like, oh, how does this relate to the whole? Given that this movie's animated, I went into this knowing it was about a pig man based on what I know about this movie. Um, 
And I was just like, oh, it's probably just some kooky animated world decision. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I, I kind of didn't give it much credit in my head. But I was so impressed with that aspect of this movie as it was going on. And I kind of had the realization that, you know, Miyazaki, obviously, as a filmmaker, I should, I should expect... I should expect that from. I should have known going in that that would hold some sort of greater significance. Oh, like thematic and, significance? Yeah. yeah. And instead, it surprised me. I was so blown away as the movie was progressing at how important the pig aspect of yeah. his character is. Um, I was completely shocked by all of the comments about him being a pig-headed womanizer. All these things were things I wasn't expecting to get out of this movie, but I think are so important. He's he's established very early on as kind of a likable, interesting interesting character that we want to watch in like his first mission to rescue all these little girls from these pirates. Mm -hmm. Um he's reading a nineteen twenty nine cinema magazine. He's listening to cool cool music and drinking drinking and smoking like a badass. (laughs) Yeah, smoking cigarettes, just chilling. He's got Um, a sick fucking beach hideaway. Yeah, and it's like, I'm like, yeah, fuck yeah, this guy's bad, and he's a pig, I like pigs. Um, and then as the movie kind of, you know, progresses, and it's, it is a very simple movie, but kind of, I think you referred to it as kind of being like a hangout road movie almost. In a weird and way, it's, yeah. And it, yeah, it's not like totally that, but I see that quality to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we find out that he's, you know, he's a loner for a reason, mm-hmm. and that that you know, pig-headed loner quality about him is the thing that... The fact that he is a pig, he's cursed to be a pig, is at the very core of his personal flaw also. And I, I should have known that going in, but I didn't. What is it about Miyazaki that has made him and his movies such a a massive global success? Well, I think that... So, I've seen... a a decent amount of his movies. I've seen. I, I know there's a handful that I haven't, but I've seen a lot of the big ones. Um, my family really got into Miyazaki because um, my neighbor Totoro, which um, I think Roger Ebert, Francisco Ebert, really liked. And my dad was like watching after movies one day. Uh, my older sister was like a baby, or like not a baby, like a toddler. And he saw him highlighting that movie, and he thought like, oh, whoa, that looks fucking dope so he like went to blockbuster and rented it and uh, my older sister like fell in love and wanted to watch it over and over so I ended up like buying the vhs tape and then from there um sometime in the mid 2000s i want to say there's like a big glut i think it was probably after the success of spirited away which was like massive like global success won the oscar for best animated feature it led to disney um kind of re-releasing uh, a bunch of his films in dub versions on DVD. Um, so we got a bunch of those and watched them. And they're really cool. And I, I think that I think that Miyazaki, the, the qualities of his work that help him, or that sort of make him stand out, um, is really just the uh, key distinguishers of a lot of filmmakers that I love and that sort of stand the test of time, which is that he has a really good handle on like kind of all the elements of cinema. He has a really good handle on how to tell a story, uh, how to you know, create arcs, create payoffs. Um, and he is someone who's so talented in terms of being able to animate all kinds of different settings and environments and actions and movements. Um, because if you look at something like 
I recently um, watched Princess Mononoke, which actually it was the first time that I had seen it. And that's essentially like a grand epic. It's like an ecological fable, but it's also just this massive epic story. It's like an anti-war film, and it's you know about like depleting the earth and taking its resources, and it's told on this massive scale, and it's a lot more serious than Porco Rosso, um, but it's the type of thing that it it just is able to establish you know the stakes, it's able to establish the goal, it's able to establish the characters and their wants and their needs and their intricacies in the ways that you know all great filmmakers are able to do in a way that almost feels effortless. And in a weird way, Porco Rosso is not a movie of his is like super well known necessarily. It's not well known in the way that you can bring up Spirited Away or Totoro and someone who's maybe not as attuned to his work or even not as attuned maybe to Santa as a whole, they might know what those movies are. But Porco Rosso is sort of like, I guess maybe lesser known within his catalog. But for me, it's always been the one that I come back to the most because like it's opening scene, it just establishes everything you need to know. It gets right into the meat of the story and it sucks you in. Um, it's, a movie that is set, even though the main character is a pig, uh, it's set in a world that is clearly defined as like pre-world or post-World War One, pre-World War Two Italy, um, in key like real-world locations like the Adriatic Sea, the Adriatic Peninsula, and like northern Italy. Um, and it, it's not set in any kind of like fantastical worlds like some of the Spirit of the Way or House of Castle. And it's able to like, even though obviously there was never a period of time where like. There were these like airplane pirates, like dominating the skies, and like. Or, or I didn't know that only a hundred years ago there was pig people. <laughs> <laughs> it's this really interesting merging of kind of like a more real world setting with these fantastical elements, but never letting one or the other overtake the other. It, it's able to seamlessly kind of blend these two things into one, um, and you know, in a way that's very light and breezy and likable, but still allows for moments of like pretty intense emotion and still allow for like really big laughs and things that are uh, a little bit more sad. It's, it's just a really incredible feat of filmmaking, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think that there's, there's so much unique little detail that I think kind of helps hold this whole thing together, mm -hmm. um, both in the characters and in the visuals and, uh, this movie really gives moments the time to breathe. It's a short movie. It's only 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. It feels bigger than that because mm -hmm. of what is in it. But there's still so many sequences here where, like, you know, when Porco ducks below the clouds and all of a sudden all the world is shadowed by this thick cloud coverage and there's amazing music playing and just wide shots that linger in ways you might not expect them to in other animated movies and stuff like that. Or, I mean, not even... Not to... You know, treat not animated and live action. Yeah, not not even to, in ways movies as a whole wouldn't necessarily linger yeah. on them. But it's just trust in these quiet, simple, beautiful moments of seeing this airplane in darkness that like helps so much to paint the picture of this character who is kind of, he, I mean, he's similar to a lot of other great, you know, Japanese protagonists that I can think of, like that are kind of a little bit nomadic. Um, I think that that's like an interesting aspect of Japanese cinema that I've always really, really loved. Uh, these kind of nomadic, reserved heroes. And I do think that that juxtaposes so nicely with the American character, um, Donald Curtis, who you've brought up, because that was something to me that, that jumped out to me as really interesting watching this, is the, the, the view that this movie has 
on the behaviors of Americans, I think, yeah. is something that I found very amusing. Uh, there's a part where he's flying higher, Donald Curtis is flying higher than he needs to be flying, and he's like silhouetted by the sun, and someone makes yeah. a comment to the effect that it's like a very American way to fly an airplane, basically. Yeah. Like, um, there's a, a great sense of detail just to everything, because you know, I think that like with like with any movie, I think the little details in terms of creating the set, like really solidifying the setting and solidifying the behaviors of the characters, like through that, you're able to also shine a light on certain things like cultural differences. Specifically, I'm thinking with Donald Curtis, like just by putting in that extra effort to really drive home, you know, his like little pigheadish tendencies, which is you know ironic because he's not the pig in this movie. Um, it's able to give you a greater sense of like what the world was like at that time, and in a way, like how the world still uh, exists in a, a similar fashion. Very unlike Porco, Donald Curtis is a romantic to a to a major detriment. He romanticizes himself. He romanticizes women. He is he's a pilot and a screenwriter and he wants to be an actor and he and wants to be president, president. <laughs> yeah. and he's like he's like Ronald Reagan but then at the end you know like it's when they're reduced down to it they are just both it, they're both two different sides of the same pig-headed masculine coin like you said Porco just barely wins the fist fight but at the end they're they're just beating the shit out of each other and they both have just completely fucked up faces which is so funny because like donald they established that donald establishes that he's a screenwriter and hollywood's interested in what he's writing and they want to cast him and then by the end of the movie his face looks like ground beef because he's gotten into a fist fight with porco <laughs> over the honor of uh the, the hand in marriage of a young woman that he has barely met he met a few scenes ago in a great great scene where he's introduced as having like scaled the side of this like mountain <laughs> and then he and then he drops down in like a really dramatic you know flying in the sun fashion and lands and like just barely sticks the landing and it's kind of wobbly and then he like successfully like shows off and then kind of enters in it's such a funny way to introduce that character to this new like set of circumstances kind of leading yeah. into the third act there I kind of want to talk a little bit about the flashback sequences in this movie, because there's two. The one where we get to see a young Porco flying with Gina mm -hmm. as she runs out and sees... Porco passes by her, her restaurant island, and she sees him kind of doing laps around the island, and she has a flashback thinking of him as a younger man. Um, and there's something about this scene that I, I like just instant goosebumps, but it's like the perfect combination of like all aspects of a movie coming together yeah, in yeah. this like, in this like climactic character moment. Uh, there's something, so I'm, I'm a big sucker for any kind of movie that deals with the idea of like reconciling your past self with your present self and making realizations about your past and how it relates to you as a person. Cause I think that that's like key to just sort of the human experience is like, growing and evolving and then thinking back and growing and evolving more by reflecting on who you were in the past and your relationships with people. And I, I, you know, when I think of this movie first and foremost, a lot of the time I'm thinking of sort of more kind of lighter fun elements. I'm thinking of, you know, the air battles. I'm thinking of how kooky and funny the pirates are. I'm thinking about like Donald and his like 
you know, Americanisms. Um, and I, I think it's easy to kind of in that forget that the character of Gina is, you know, just sort of so heartbreaking because she's someone who she establishes herself as having only been married to pilots. She's been married to three different pilots, all of whom have died in combat, which is heartbreaking. And you get the sense that she's been like maybe married to these pirates. Uh, she really loves these men uh, who have passed, but deep down her heart has always been with Porco. Um, and when you see Porco in this flashback, you know, he's flying with Gina, they're young, probably like teenagers. Um, and you see kind of his passion. You see that he really does love being in the air and you maybe get a sense that he really loves sharing that feeling with someone else. And clearly it, you know, it, it, it has an impression on Gina because she herself is a pilot uh, and she also has this restaurant that's in the middle of the ocean for pilots to congregate and be merry and be happy. It's essentially like a safe haven for everybody. Um, but we also know Porco now as someone who is very affected by what he's seen, by the people who he has lost, by um, what he's had to do, what he's survived, by the sense, this, and this sort of, I guess, gets to the second flashback too, by the sense that his time should have already come, but he missed it. So it's really, really heartbreaking kind of to see her remember him and remember his passion and remember this person that you know, was fueled by this passion, kind of now turned into someone who's a little bit bitter and more hardened. And I think that kind of makes their romance, um, in a way, a lot more realistic. Uh, I, I always kind of like, am hesitant to, uh, like, I, I, I always kind of resist that idea that like, oh, some people you just have to wait for. Because in my mind, I always sort of operate in just sort of my life and the way I view the world with, um, you know, if someone isn't ready that doesn't mean you have to hold out for them that actually it's probably more a sign that you should move on but i think that with how they established gina and porco's relationship and their shared history there is they're able to miyazaki's really able to convey the sense that sometimes the person that is right for you isn't right for you like isn't right for you until a certain moment in their life which is going to become a subject of conversation, I'm sure, when we get to our next movie. Um, yeah. Both Gina and Porco, I think, represent living in the living in two different types of post-traumatic experiences after war. Mm -hmm. Gina is kind of trapped in this past, surrounded by these things that are constantly reminding her of how things used to be. She's surrounded by people that remind her of the people that she's lost. Whereas Porco is someone who's constantly running away from that. Mm -hmm. um, it's like Miyazaki saying that at some point down the line, maybe some people are meant to cross paths in the way that you always think that maybe they could have. Gina is someone in this movie that I, I like quite a bit, who I actually feel gets a little bit overshadowed by Fio in the relationship that Fio and Porco have. And I like that relationship too. But the entire time I'm watching this movie, I just want to know more about Gina. Not to a fault though. Like I think that yeah. that's one of the things that keeps me engaged. But yeah, on to the second flashback that you brought up, which is kind of Porco's feeling like Porco's time has already come and gone, but he still remains... Uh, when he tells that story about looking up into the sky and seeing all of these these men that have died, 
and he feels like dead himself, but then ends up returning to Earth. The, the images in that whole section are probably going to sit with me for a long time. Yeah. Because even though he is pig-headed, that's the moment that it all kind of adds up. Theo sees him the way that he was or the way that he could be or the way that he is, the way that she knows him, but not the way that he himself kind of is walking around in his own shoes. Uh, it's really heartbreaking, the, the notion that his... It, it's just sort of hinted at, you know, they don't, like, dwell on this too much, but, like his best friend dies in the, in the story that he's telling Theo, his best friend died in this era and his best friend died shortly after he got married to Gina. And shortly after he was the Porco was his best man at the wedding. So it's just almost like a throwaway, but this idea too, that like Porco hasn't quite reconciled the fact that the emotions that you carry with a memory can be more, it can be multiple things at once. Like a, a memory you have isn't purely happy or purely sad or purely scary or purely um, one thing. It can be multiple things. You know, you can be, you can look back on like the wedding where you were someone's best man, both with the sense of happiness of that moment, of that reception, of that ceremony, of that celebration, while also looking back on it with a sense of longing and regret because you know that that moment that was so perfect and so pure and so beautiful only exists within that sort of like bubble of happiness for so long before shortly after it gets burst by sadness. So a, a memory that was happy can have that tinge of melancholy. And that's sort of like, I guess maybe key to, it's not something that gets swelled on, but maybe that's also like key to Porco kind of losing this curse is reconciling that fact. Totally. And there's a great echo moment in this scene where he early on he very passively says all the good guys die and then in this moment he like reminds us of that and he says the good guys are the ones who were dead after telling that story and it's in that moment that you realize you're like oh my god like at the beginning of this movie he said to us that he doesn't view himself as a good guy Mm -hmm. like he like flat out says that because he's living he pleads in that flashback to allow him to go in place of his best friend going to wherever it is that they're going. Uh, So I think that there's probably guilt there, you know, as it relates to Gina too, he probably doesn't see himself as, as a suitable replacement for his best friend, even in her life. You know, we talked about in the last episode, we talked about escape from New York. Are there movies that you, that movies that aren't part of a franchise or that don't have a sequel that you feel like you would love to kind of walk around in the shoes of that world again? Because when I watched Porco, when I watched Porco Rosso, I, I, all I could think about was how I wanted more from this world. I know that the story kind of ends. I don't want to see Porco alive as a man. I don't need that. But I feel like there's something about this world that like, I, I want to continue to walk around in its shoes. Um, and referring to Escape from New York, that's obviously a movie that got a out of nowhere sequel 15 years after the fact or whatever it is. I still have not seen, um, but I really want to. It yeah. sounds like it's a lot of fun. But yeah, but like Escape from New York would have been an answer, you know, at some point yeah. to this question. Like you, you see the potential in that world for more. I think that this movie in particular has like, there's so many things that get brought up, but they don't, because they don't need to. They don't really dwell on certain things you just sort of accept this world for what it is which is ostensibly a real life location but filled with all these like things that kind of can exist never existed and probably never will exist like one thing that comes to mind is 
um, there's a part where all of the gangs are gonna descend on this cruise ship to rob it. And the cruise ship has like, they're like, we are about to be robbed by sea pirates. Um, do not panic. We have our own like security force ready to uh, deploy against them. And they deployed two like single engine biplanes as like security to fight back against the pirates. So like just even within that, I would love to see more of a world, more of this world where like, you know, how, how are there other, other measures taken in place to the fact that within the universe of Porto Rosso, like air travel is the preferred method of travel for everyone. Like yeah. do people just have their own, like how, is, is having a personal plane at this time a luxury? How many people have access to planes? Like there's all these cool things in there, but I think to your point, this movie in particular belongs to a very particular category of film. And like for some reason, the other movie, probably because it's also set in Italy, the other movie that jumps to mind is like within the same category I'm about to describe as Call Me By Your Name. But the, the I think that this movie, probably more than any other movie, honestly, is an example of a movie world that I would want to like live in. Even if, even though, and I, I say this obviously with a huge asterisk of, they very clearly hint in this movie that fascism is about to overtake. It's on the it's on the rise. It's on the rise. Yeah. <laughs> but the 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 world that they set up, where like air travel is a preferred method of travel, and like there's these really incredible little communities and pockets, sort of like sprinkled throughout the Adriatic Peninsula, and then even within like the Italian city that he visits, um, there's just so many cool little details and like locations that I would want to physically walk around in and experience and go drinking at and eat food at like i would love to go to the movie theater that he he goes to in in italy where he's watching some like he's watching some like mickey mouse type cartoon that has been produced exclusively for this movie that i think is so cool um so yeah i think that there's certain movies that definitely fall into that category of world that I would want to explore more in other stories, but I think this one goes one step further in being a movie that I would just, or a movie world that I would just sort of want to walk around in for a couple hours too. So when did you know that this was going to be a Desert Island movie? And really quick, yeah. um, on that, I would like to say that Porco lives on a desert island. <laughs> Porco lives on a desert island. If anybody knows his number, because he's got a sick, like, fucking one, he's got, like, one of those uh, telephones where you got to hold the earpiece to your ear and the mouthpiece to your mouth. Yeah. He's got his number, so he can come pick us up in his sweet plane. That's yeah. fucking badass. Or, or if anyone thinks that they can help us get Michael Keaton on the podcast. Dude, if we got Michael Keaton to come <laughs> on and not. talk about, if you picked, like, fucking... Batman Returns and like multiplicity, and we have to just talk about those. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, that'd be sick. Michael, Michael, if you're listening, uh, you know, last episode we established that if Kurt Russell's in a movie, it's probably great. Uh, Michael Keaton's been in some duds, but he's always the best part of every movie he's in. Michael Keaton is is watchable. He is um, so watchable. When did you know that you wanted to be like? Porco laying on your your lounge your lounge chair with your booze and your cigarettes and just kind of watching this movie on a loop until you die. I would say that honestly, I don't even remember when it was that we first watched this. I remember that we bought this 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 movie we got with like a whole bunch of other Studio Ghibli DVDs. I think we got it at like Borders um, because they had a bunch of them. Our rest in peace, Borders. I would say that honestly, by the end of the opening sequence, I was like, "There's this movie's got to actively." 
just be like toxic and disgusting in order for me to hate it. Cause like the opening scene is Porco's lying on his sweet desert island oasis. He gets a call saying, Hey Porco, the Mama Ayuda gang is stealing gold from this ship. And he's like, I think he's something like, is that all? And they're like, well, there's also uh, schoolgirls. And he says like, Oh, well, that's going to cost you. And then proceeds to get his plane like revved up. We, cut to the Mamayuda gang, which is like this, essentially like a bumbling gang of pirates who are all very ineffectual. They Led by Brad Brad Garrett as a great character we haven't mentioned. So and he's good. so funny in it. He's yeah. so funny. They, um, so they uh, rob this plane. They kidnap 15 like kindergarten to first grade age like children. But what I love is the detail <laughs> of they don't try to intimidate or scare the little girls. They try as hard as possible to like make their scary ship full of bullets and guns like a fun place for them. They also make a point to say that they kidnap all the girls and not just some of them because it would be mean to separate them. And then Porco comes in in an amazing action scene to like uh, to um, rescue the girls. He doesn't like kill anybody. He just messes with their they're, he just essentially kind of wrecks the engines on their planes. So they have to land in the sea. Um, and he even is, goes so far as to leave them gold, like a gold brick so they can get repairs, which is a great reveal later when you find out they didn't calculate enough to cover the cost of paint. So the end of their plane is just like metal, but the rest yeah, of their plane has like green paint. Um, <laughs> but just within that opening scene, you establish, uh, you establish a lot of things. Like you establish um, just the tone of the movie. You establish the just sort of the frenetic pace of the action you establish the comedy and the characters uh and just by the end of it it, it was enough to have sucked me in um and I, I would say that's probably the moment where i realized it was a movie i was going to take with me streets of Hong Kong, a mysterious woman, a young cop, and an innocent dreamer are about to meet where mystery and romance collide. Miramax Films and Rolling Thunder Pictures present Wong Kar Wai's Chung King Express. Time Magazine calls it a delicious romance. is why I'm a little bit I think so highly of this movie like I mean I you know we yeah. talked in the last episode about talked in the last episode about Small Soldiers Small Soldiers a movie I think highly of Small Soldiers a movie I wish more people would see Chunking Express as episode two of our show intimidates me because this is a movie that I think is I'm so excited to talk about I'm always excited to watch it but it's a movie that my my thoughts about can change every hour never negatively always positive but like the way that i feel about this movie and what the way that i feel like this movie is doing things and to the effect that it's doing things can change literally depending on the mood i'm in when i watch it or the, like on like what i ate for dinner before i watched it could really? drastically affect everything about my viewing of this movie but also like i said it's a little bit intimidating because a starting here Right off the bat, we're going to get into it. Starting with a synopsis of this movie, 
I don't know what to say because, you know, there's this movie is split into two parts. Um, this movie is about two cops who are lovesick. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, two. This movie is about two cops who are bastards. Um, <laughs> uh, it's about two cops who are lovesick. We kind of see both of their stories play out with very interesting characters surrounding them back to back without too much connective tissue. Um, this movie's kind of about the weird thing that just is love. Um, and I don't know how to do a synopsis of this movie. I, I can say right off the bat that the second half of this movie is a little bit more grounded, I would say. Mm-hmm. It's easier to say what the second half is about, but even broken down in a synopsis standpoint, the second half probably doesn't sound like much on paper. It's it's about a cop who was in love with a stewardess who has kind of decided to stop seeing him and a woman who works, a woman named Faye who works in um, this express takeout restaurant that the cop goes to all the time who becomes obsessed with him and starts sneaking into his house to like, help clean up his life a little bit post breakup, but also to like interfere with it a little bit. And like that dynamic just plays out for about an hour, never a dull moment, but without too much more going on. Um, Obviously, you know, he finds out that she's been in his apartment and that shifts the dynamic a little bit, but like not in the way that a normal movie would, you know, cause that to play out. And the ending is very ambiguous as to like what the state of their relationship is. And then if we rewind to the beginning of this movie, I've seen this movie like six times. Yeah. I just watched it. I don't know what the first half is about, but I know it works. Like I, yeah. I know that the I know that the police officer in the first half is heartbroken after a relationship ended and he's obnoxiously romantic and he decides to eat a bunch of expiring pineapples over the course of a month to signify the expiration of his love. Um, with this woman who loved pineapples. I know that to be facts about the first half of this movie. There's also a woman in the first half who is involved in, that he falls in love with or claims to fall in love with. I think you can be doubtful about that character's love, um, who is this very, you know, in her own kind of world that we're seeing. She She's involved in this like criminal underworld that kind of takes place behind this weird bar with this dude who is seen kind of like having sex with this woman who's wearing a wig to look like this other woman um she gets taken advantage of by these other criminals like and they steal some of her stuff and in the movies about her uh the first half of this movie is kind of showing her like in the fallout of of getting screwed over by these other criminals yeah but like i kind of don't really know what's going on all i know is that all of these things together like absolutely hypnotize me and i don't even want to try to think about it more than that i'm sure there's an easy very simple explanation to the first half of this movie that is as simple as the second half but i've just never thought about it that's not what matters here right um yeah I, I think that this movie is, because I, I should have mentioned to you before I started recording, this is, uh, I watched this movie on the Criterion channel, and when you open the, like, when you go to Chunking Express, and you, like, open that page, 
there's the movie, there's the movie with the commentary added, and then there's a couple supplementary um, videos. And one of them is the director of Moonlight, Real Street Talk, Barry Jenkins, talking about sort of what this movie in uh, One Car Wise, In Mood for Love, mean to him. And he brings up something, I think it's a great sort of first point to start off with, uh, which is the idea of interiority versus exteriority and how this film, and I kept making this note, feels like a novel in the way that a novel is able to sort of take on a first person perspective and draw you into a setting and a character's mindset. And I, I want to know sort of what your thoughts are as far as uh, how you view the way that this film uh, portrays the interiority of its characters. That's interesting. Um, let me think about that. Yeah, I mean, because this movie is all about being in the heads of all these characters. Mm -hmm. um, everything about this movie feels like you're right there with it. I think that the emotions of these characters are heightened to a degree that is universally relatable in the way it feels to, to be heartbroken or to be in love, but also is not necessarily set in a literal reality, I guess. Um, especially in the second half, the way that Faye invades his the the home of this character to try to like clean him up secretly from the inside. Like there's almost, there's like this layer of, as like a metaphor, I think, of the way that people behave with each other when they're falling in love. It's such an interesting thing. Like you want to be there to scrub out their, their past a little bit and to kind of like walk around in it. Um, I almost feel like I need to think about that a little bit more. So Before what do you think even... about that? Uh, I realize we should probably start with your introduction to the movie. How did you first come about Yeah. That? When I was just getting into, not just getting into movies, but like early on in my love of movies, and I was just starting to kind of discover the Criterion Collection, um, this was amongst a bulk Barnes & Noble sale purchase that I made um, probably about a decade ago now. If I had to guess, I might be wrong about that, but if I had to guess, close to a decade. And it just, I don't know why I chose this, but I did. And I watched it at a time that I knew what I was seeing was great, but I couldn't quite explain why. I think I probably, now that I'm thinking about it, I probably picked it because Quentin Tarantino has championed this movie. Uh, I, I know that the production company title that pops up, I think, first is Rolling Thunder Pictures, I'm pretty sure, which I believe is Tarantino-owned. And they released Chunking Express and a couple other things. Uh, kind of helped bring them more international recognition, I guess. Because I, I remember a quote. I'm I, Now that I'm talking about it, I'm sure this is what, you know, 15-year-old Mike or 16-year-old Mike was probably driven to watch this movie hearing. But I, if I remember correctly, like Tarantino said that this movie like brought him to tears the first time he thought, saw it in theaters because he was overwhelmed by by the power of cinema or something great, like something like really dramatic like that. You know what I mean? Um, but I get it. Like now, like now that I'm a little older, I think when I watched it the first time, I don't know that I, I knew what I was seeing was good but I don't know that I quite fully got that aspect of it. And I think now that I've rewatched it a few times, now that I just watched it again this week, you know, like that is something that's finally starting to hit me. I'm like, whoa, this movie is one of a kind and can only exist 
because of all of the layers that make movies interesting. This movie is a is a perfect example of like movies sort of as their own art form. You know, there's certain things, there's certain films that you see and you think that could have been a book or that could have been like a video game or something. Um, and it's it's you know when you think about a lot of the types of films you you would you would like to see in like Criterion Collection. Those are carefully curated examples of film as, you know, like a, a modern art form. So I want to know to you, what are the qualities that stick out to you about Junking Express um, that sort of allow it to be a perfect example of a movie as like an ultimate form of artistic expression? This movie, just right off the bat, it has such an unusual, like, kind of cutting pattern. Um, this movie cuts like it's a music video but it doesn't feel like a music video but it does feel like a music video but the acting is great and it feels like it lingers on the actors giving perfect performances in the exact right way every single time but somehow while lingering on those performances the camera is simultaneously freewheeling or the illusion of kind of freewheeling and having a life of its own and moving in ways that I don't see the camera moving often I you know we go from like looking at two characters lying in a bed in a mirror and the camera pans and it's a different mirror and we're seeing them at a different angle, but it felt not like an intentional move. Like it felt like it just kind of happened. And I'm sure that's not the case, but that's how it feels. Um, the way that like we, we kind of follow behind characters as they're talking and then all of a sudden the camera will, you know, like tilt a little bit in a strange way or, or kind of, um, yeah, like pan over to the right to something that you weren't expecting to see um and it feels like the camera didn't even know it was going to see it but then at the same time it's all composed in a way that where all of the elements in frames seem too perfect where it couldn't have been an accident and then i guess going back to the, like the internal the internalized aspect of things um all the ways this this movie explores in internal spaces as characters are going through things uh is a really interesting thing like the, the the guy who the cop who is obsessed with the pineapples um the way we just see him kind of like suffering in his home but it's like a suffering with like a smirk almost which is like what makes that character interesting to me like he he enjoys what he's going through almost yeah. Um, and you see him just pounding can after can of pineapple while he has like a dog sitting on a countertop yeah. and he like walks across the house and like puts his feet up out a window and like all these weird things are happening, but the camera's always in the exact right place, but it also always feels voyeuristic. It, it feels almost like a documentary, but not at all at the same time. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's so poetic. It's so weird. Like all of these things. And the music, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to the music oh, yeah, to some yeah. extent. There's like four songs in this movie that just play over and over and over and over again on jukeboxes or on radios or whatever. And it's and it's it's such a eclectic batch of songs that somehow fit perfectly. Like I know that I've read before, like the joke that once you see Chunking Express, you'll never listen to the Mamas and the Papas California Dream in the oh, same yeah, way yeah. again. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, like it's... It's just all these things that a movie does um, in the way that a movie can recontextualize other art, yeah. like, a, oh like California Dream, and like, it's crazy. 
Yeah, with Calico Demon, which is actually like it's actually this is one of my favorite songs like ever. Like I, ever since I first heard that song, it's always been like a go-to. Like, I think it's just a beautiful piece of songwriting and like composition and orchestration. And the fact that this movie now will constantly come to mind when I hear that song is it, it speaks so well to how Mon Wai is someone who is completely in control of all of the elements of filmmaking, converging towards his goal. And his goal is to evoke, like, I would say his goal is to evoke the feeling of being within the headspace of someone who is falling in love with it, which is, it is you know, in a, a very universal emotion. Everybody's probably going to experience that feeling at least once in their life. Um, so the fact that he's able to convey that is astounding to me. Um, and I, I want to bring up too, because this is something that Barry Jenkins was talking about in his, um, in his interview. Uh, he was saying that you know, he kind of discovered Long Car Wai while he was in film school. And what he sees, or what he remembers like sort of seeing in Chunking Express is a movie that essentially was breaking everything he was learning in school as far as techniques, as far as kind of, I, I guess there's a sense of a lot of the time in a weird way, objectivity with uh, how you approach filmmaking, how you approach film writing. Um, and that's something that I think I've always kind of struggled, I kind of struggle with a lot in, in film school is I, I think it's, you know, one way of, of looking at film is sort of the way that someone like Michael Hayekin does, where he is very objective in terms of he wants to present a story with a lot of um, you know, different converging conflicts and characters and things, but he doesn't want to include too much of his own subjectivity in that story. And that's one way of looking at film, it's totally valid, but I, I do realize I like and tend to gravitate more towards a lot of films um, that bring in a lot of subjectivity from the director about a subject, about a theme, um, just about their own approach to these characters that they're bringing to life. So I'm curious what your thoughts are as far as how this film is able to break a lot of conventional rules of filmmaking, or at least I would say conventional Western rules of filmmaking, while still being something that is enjoyable and you know easily recognizable almost instantaneously by film critics as a masterpiece. How do you think it's able to pull that off? Yeah, I just had a conversation recently with one of my best friends about the idea that they were bringing up the fact that like film is a weird art form because of the way it has been turned into like a commodity in America. Um, like film is often, I, I think that no matter what it is, film is undeniably an art form, um, but it's often packaged to be sold in stores essentially mm -hmm. in the United States, kind of the way the film is treated in the United States. Not all film is like that. That's obviously more mainstream film. Um, but this movie is, this is the definition to me of like film as, as high art. Right. Um, so on the Barry, you know, on the going off the Barry Jenkins conversation or, or interview, the time you talked to Barry Jenkins. The time I uh, talked to him personally. <laughs> yeah. Um, going off of that, like, yeah, I mean, this movie goes in such direct opposition to what we're made to believe a film needs to be to be bought and sold successfully essentially you know I, I think if we're talking about film school 
some of the better teachers that I had in film school kind of told me that like, you know, like that old jazz thing of you need to learn the rules first so you know how to break them. And I think that this is a movie that knows how to break every rule. Right. Um, oh, yeah. So it's just, it's completely succeeding, but it can only do that because of the existence of rules in the first place, I think, or right. what we perceive to be the rules of, of making movies. I think that that's why this movie is special for a lot of reasons. One of the reasons I think it is special is because of how refreshing it is to watch mm -hmm. in, in opposition or in contrast with, with, you know, more standard mainstream movies. Um, because it's still entertaining. I don't think that people wouldn't enjoy this. This isn't no, like, like, yeah, this isn't a movie that people would be like, I'm bored. Like, I think that this is a fascinating movie. And I think a lot of people would kind of feel that way. Um, one thing that I thought of when I was watching it this time around and kind of, uh, I think fits here is, is, I mean, I'm a big fan of like Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground and the story behind the first Velvet Underground album, Velvet Underground and Nico, uh, with the Andy Warhol banana on the front is this idea that like that album changed rock and roll forever, but it was a total financial failure. Mm -hmm. um, and the joke is a thousand people bought Velvet Underground and Nico, but all 1000 of the people that bought it decided to start a band after they listened to it. And you feel it when you listen to it. It's, you know, that album's been out for, 53 years and even now you hear it and it sounds something sounds refreshing and chunking express is from 1994 um i was born in april of 1994 so this movie is set like in the month of my birth so this movie has been because i think the pineapples expire on may 1st 1994 yeah. right um so this movie has aged every day that i have aged basically it has been around as long as I have been around a quarter of a century and it still feels like it has that impact that like Velvet Underground and Nico had of yeah. if you show this to the right impressionable young person, it might literally change their life. And I don't think every yeah. movie has that quality. So that's really key to, I guess, understanding and enjoying this movie is the fact that to an impressionable mind, like let's say you talk with someone who is completely unaware of what cinema is of an art form. If you showed them Chunking Express and then from there, you know, there from there like they kind of form their idea of what cinema and film is, it's ultimately going to be like looking at film as what it should be, which is a, a, a means for like a kind of personal expression. Even if like the subject matter itself isn't necessarily like autobiographical, but it's a way of conveying what you might be thinking about, let's say like love or affection or care, or even, even in a really interesting way, like the um, connection that you might feel to your environment, to your home. Because I think one thing that I would love to discuss is the way that it, it highlights Hong Kong. Like it's, it's like every setting has so much life and so much personality and it's showcased, like the settings that are showcased are the types of settings that, in a weird way, I feel like don't get enough recognition in just like all of cinema. Like a lot of this, uh, a lot of scenes in the movie will take place at essentially like Circle K convenience stores, yeah. but they're lit and they're sort of framed in such a way that these settings feel like so cinematic. So cinematic, but the most important places on earth. So 
I want uh, to get your thoughts a little bit on how you think this film is able to convey settings as well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this movie is kind of set around like food, even um, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> within places. Like obviously the and yeah, obviously the, the the Midnight Express is the name of the the mm -hmm. little takeout place. Um, but like the you know the uh, officer six six three or whatever orders a chef salad, and earlier in that movie, the the pineapple cop. Um, orders four chef salads in a row in the same night or whatever yeah. from room service and like he's just showing like like kind of like binge eating salad um and other food and yeah so like it takes like these things that are all very relatable to us like it makes them big and cinematic but it makes it more relatable because these are all things that like i've when i've been feeling sad i've eaten six meals in 30 minutes <laughs> or whatever like but you don't usually see that in a movie I think no, yeah. like it's not it doesn't feel like it's special enough to be in a movie but the fact is everything is special enough to be in a movie I think I think such a key point to bring up like there's certain things that you know if you have kind of a more prudish view of cinema point, like oh we don't want to show like we don't want to show a circle okay we don't want to show a convenience store there's nothing in that that's poetic or that you can make beautiful but like that's a counterpoint to something express like you can make that type of setting the most personal and in a way romantic like place in the world if you have a good understanding of how to bring your characters and sort of bring their world interiority, whatever they're dealing with their lives, into this setting. And set in a big and set in a big city, it mm -hmm. takes all of these small, weird details and it puts them in the context of kind of feeling alone in this world that is massive around it. Instead of making it about the big world, it's about the small thing happening in the big world. And that you know, plays hand in hand with some of the themes, like uh, the, I was 0 0.01 centimeters away from her and six hours later I fell in love with her, like kind of attitude of feeling like you're, when you're in a big city and, and you know, all these interactions that can happen at any moment, you never know when the paths might cross again. We're conditioned to expect that these two characters are gonna fall in love the perfect movie way by the end. And it still kind of happens, but after, after Faye decides to like let the relationship breathe for a year before actually giving it any thought. It's like this really weird decision that she, right at the moment you expect them to come together, mm -hmm. she leaves for a year. And it's like such a weird thing that is like, but I guess like this movie's trying to say that in this big world with all these people and all these small interactions, like there is such a thing as, as like romantic fate, I guess just to kind of like put a bow on this i want to know because you mentioned it early on that you had a big revelation watching it this time and i'm curious does that tie into how why this movie is a desert island movie for you yeah i think what happened this time around i mean a lot of the stuff that we've already discussed uh it's part of that big revelation a little bit but i think that there was a scene there's a scene where that the song it says like what a difference a day makes kicks in and it's the moment where in the second half, the guy's playing with the toy plane yeah. in this room, and it just doesn't cut, but it feels so, like, kinetic. And, you know, like, the first half of this movie is cutting so much, and then all of a sudden, in the second half, we have this moment where we're just kind of following this little toy airplane, and then he starts, like, uh, he ultimately, like, has sex with the, the stewardess, um, and the two of them, he's, like, shown, like, landing the toy plane on her back in bed. And it's, like, this whole, like, 
probably like two minute portion of this movie where all of a sudden I'm like, I've seen this scene five times before, but I did remember it, but it was completely different. And it's not what I ever, like it has this quality and I don't know why, I don't know what it is or why it is, but this is a movie that every single time I watch it, it is a different movie. Right. And that's a, a desert island movie doesn't need to be that because I think that that's almost intimidating. Like right. I almost oh, feel yes. in, I, I almost feel intimidated by Chunking Express because I can't quite get a handle on it. Oh, Whereas yeah. another desert island movie is something that you know might provide comfort watching it because you know exactly what you're expecting every single time. But this is a movie that I've seen a handful of times, but something happened when I was watching that scene where I felt like I've never seen this scene before and I was having my mind blown by it for the first time, even though I'm sure as a 16-year-old almost a decade ago, I probably had my mind blown by it then too. And that is the hallmark of a movie that will stand the test of time. So next week we're going to be doing, or actually not next week, two weeks from now because this, this podcast is going to be twice a month. And who knows what might happen down the line. But at this point in time, doing two movies an episode, I don't know that I can realistically take on on seriously talking about eight movies a month. <laughs> I would start to resent movies. I would start to hate yeah. the very art form that I've devoted my life to. We're going to be doing uh, my pick, which is It Comes at Night, and Harry's pick. Which is uh, Signs by our good good friend M. Knight. These two movies are kind of linked together through a conversation that me and Harry had on the island about the things that used to scare us when we were little, or in my case, with It Comes at Night, the things that scared me two years ago. And as always, stay desert, stay island, stay movies, stay podcast. <laughs>